and welcome to Radical Advice on BFF.FM Best Frequencies Forever. I am so excited to be here today. Um, I am Lily Sloan and I'm a psychotherapist in San Francisco and this is a show where we talk about the intersection of psychotherapy, personal growth, activism, and taxidermy. If you'd like to join the conversation, tweet at me during the show at, at radical underscore advice. And if you have life questions you want to address at a future date, please submit them at radicaladviceshow.com. It's all anonymous. So we're also on the countdown towards the final, final ending of the show. And after today, now there are only six broadcasts left. So please send any questions, any thoughts, any feelings. Uh, just click submit on the homepage of RadicalAdviceShow.com or you can send them by carrier pigeon. This show does not replace mental health treatment and by discussing life questions, we are not uh, treating or diagnosing any specific mental health uh, concern. So please reach out to a trained professional who can cater to your specific needs. So also today is voting day in San Francisco and it's a smaller election without a ton of drama. I mean, some of it's that there's like some races that are not contended at all, which is kind of a bummer, but um, yeah. Uh, what happens with elections like this is there tends to be a pretty low turnout, but actually it still really matters. And there's some, there's some good stuff on the ballot around affordable housing. There is one thing on the ballot that we need everyone to vote no for, <laughs> which is um, a, uh, a, a there's a measure about e-cigarettes that is actually backed by Juul, the company that is benefiting from this, and it's not what it sounds like. Anyway, um, basically, if you haven't voted yet uh, today and you're able to vote here in San Francisco, um, and it, I would recommend, if you haven't already, you can find voter guides online that will make it very easy for you to understand the issues through the lens of, you know, people who've done the research who align with you politically. Um, so my favorite is the San Francisco League of Pissed Off Voters, and you can find that easily by Googling them. Um, yeah, so now let's do a little meditation. So this is the part of the show where I encourage you to just take a couple minutes to step back from whatever you're doing, either mentally or physically or both. If it's safe for you to do so, you could close your eyes. Just a moment to check in with where you're at. Noticing your breathing. Noticing any sensations in your body. Noticing what your mind is up to. And doing this 
as, as much as possible without judgment. And if there's judgment, also noticing that, noticing that you are judging because we do that. But the idea here is to observe what's happening as it is without rushing to change it, without rushing to uh, put labels on it. couple deep breaths in and out, in and out, and you can stay where you are or you can get back to it. So um, Saturday, I interviewed my dear friend Molly Merson, who is a psychotherapist and analyst in Berkeley, California. And I am so happy to have her back on the show before we end. So I'll be uh, playing that interview in segments today. And I'm actually still processing the multiverse we seem to traverse in such a relatively short period of time. Um, but yeah, first let's uh, let's hear a song. So we've got "I Know I Don't Know" by Panda Bear. Panda to an Eve reaches down a hand. Tick off, gonna get ours Anything goes as long as joy's the plan
This is Ira Glass, This American Life, and you're listening to BFF.FM. <laughs> I was laughing when I played that one. Um, uh, you're listening to Radical Advice on BFF.FM. That was I Know I Don't Know by Panda Bear. And now let's get right into my interview with Molly Merson. I, I wish I could play every minute of the silliness that went down Um when we talked for over two hours on Saturday, but the edited version is going to have to uh, suffice. Um, yeah, here we go. Here's Molly. Just that sourdough crust is just like, oh my God, I'm so hungry Chewy. right now. I am too. <laughs> like I said, I didn't eat enough breakfast. So yeah, let's get lunch after this. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> I was thinking about pupusas actually. Oh, but. Oh, there's a great pupusa place. Okay, that's what we're doing. Uh, well, um, this is a great conversation. Uh, <laughs> let's start the actual interview. <laughs> Hi, Molly. <laughs> Hi, Lily. It's really good to see you. You too. I'm really glad to have you back again because Thank you. you were uh, my second guest okay. ever on the show, wow, ever. episode two. Oh. And um, you are a beloved guest. I've had emails in the past to people being like I want Molly to come back on the show <laughs> oh it's so sweet yeah well and so you are a licensed uh, marriage and family therapist in mm -hmm. uh, California in Berkeley specifically that is where my office is located it's where your office is yeah. um, you are currently in San Francisco I'm currently so in San Francisco. you you occupy different spaces at different times that is correct yeah yeah, yeah. okay usually well. pretty local to the bay yeah yeah <laughs> When you came on here, you were just embarking on mm -hmm. psychoanalytic training. Mm -hmm. I remember those days. Yeah. <laughs> and where where has that taken you now? Yeah, those days were so full of hope and excitement and anticipation. <laughs> and now <laughs> I'm dead inside. I'm <laughs> Well, actually, my internal life is quite vibrant, um, mm. and I do have psychoanalytic training and psychoanalysis and all that immersion into the community, I think, uh, to thank for that. I've made some just amazing uh, growth in myself and in my work and in my, you know, passions in life. Um, and, yeah, there's it's like a sort of a uh, – how do I – I'm trying to take a multi-dimensional object and describe it in two-dimensional language. Mm. So uh, maybe maybe it's <laughs> a, a noise, a gesture, an interpretive dance. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see. I'm. I'm oh yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Her, her arms are swinging. Oh. Ooh. Bing. <laughs> Oh, God, 
why isn't this a TV show? So, so next, I don't know. next step. Yeah, I think something's added to it by not being able to see it and just imagine. You see your imagination. What does that make you think of? Yeah. What is your association to my mine? Or are you asking the audience? Both. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but you can respond. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, hearing that and seeing it, I, I thought of basically just being twisted up mm. and like 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 you were like um that gumby doll oh, and you're just being like yeah. kind of like twisted around mm. and mm. it's uh very like topsy-turvy and unpredictable and mm-hmm. like you're going into some sort of weird fun house Scena- <laughs> I don't know there's a lot of metaphors <laughs> happening here some of that's kind of spooky too given I know uh... we are currently recording <laughs> on uh the day of the dead is that today or was that today yesterday oh today's celebration celebration so was yesterday officially it yeah Yeah. i think so yeah yeah but it's that season for sure yeah and mercury retrograde and all these wonderful fun things Mm -hmm. um yeah i always love a good retrograde (laughs) well (laughs) i have i'm very retro yes and i like good grades yeah i was gonna say you get good grades for that Oh my god, that was so dumb. <laughs> but we're on the same page. With we that. are. We are. You know, yeah. it can't be that dumb if we're both. That's true. Hey, at it. least we're not alone. That's right. We're here together, enjoying together. this experience. Yeah. So, mm. so your psychoanalytic. Uh, oh yeah, we experience. were talking about that. Yeah, and your gestures yeah. and sounds. <laughs> That's right. Our bodies are what, like, mostly space, right? Like mm-hmm. atoms are mostly space. Like there's space between atoms, right? right, right. I think yeah. is what I'm trying to say. So dark it's like matter, dark matter. Yeah, <laughs> but there's room in there. There's there's room and spaciousness. So even though things are twisted and tangled, it doesn't feel collapsed. It doesn't feel mm. compressed. Doesn't feel. Um, it's like I encounter overwhelm and then, but there's movement. Mm. There's not a stuckness, and that that's been a really uh, amazing experience for me because in my life I've only really felt as though I've encountered stuckness and then felt stuck, and then had to like blast my way through something, which you know leaves a lot of stuff in its wake that's not altogether pleasant. So yeah. I think being in analytic training has helped me really. Just I mean. I can't even really describe it, um, open myself up in, in ways that I couldn't have possibly imagined is sort of the best way I can describe it. But even that doesn't really cut it. <laughs> but being in my third year, so, so four years of seminar. Okay, right. So seminar is um, basically all day, uh, once a week. Mm. And so being – in my third year, I kind of I'm likening it to, you know, when you go in the tunnel and then you're halfway through the tunnel, you're like, fuck, I can't really go back. Right. But I'm I'm in the middle and there's darkness on either side. <laughs> and so, yeah. That's a little bit of what it feels like. Like, all right. But then I, but then there's also this feeling of like the more I count down the weeks, the <laughs> closer mm-hmm. I am to being in my fourth year which I think will be more of an experience of like oh shit like it's almost over like this was so amazing like I don't want it to end so wow it's a really yeah I mean it's uh it really helps you confront yourself I'll say that yeah so I mean can you and I think you talked about it a little the first time you were on the show but that was a couple years ago Mm -hmm. and maybe your way of describing it would be different now um 
also people listening may not have heard the first time but you should go back and listen yeah maybe just go i back should go and well, let me go listen yeah, first yeah. and then i'll let you know if you <laughs> can um yeah i haven't really listened to it in a long time but yeah could you describe what what psychoanalysis is as opposed to mm. therapy that sure, we right. talk about on the show and, all, and it comes in so many different forms but what is psychoanalysis what yeah, would someone yeah. expect that experience to be like well, that's like that last question is hard to <laughs> address. I don't question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's the wrong question, but it's a real question. I think it's interesting when I talk to people about psychoanalysis who haven't, you know, either been in it or read about it or whatever. Yeah. Or, or let's say they have read about it, but it's um there's plenty of disparaging material. Yeah. Um psychoanalysis itself can contribute to that disparaging material. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I think people do feel maybe a little bit anxious about it sometimes. Some people are really excited about the idea. I mean, psychoanalysis is sort of one of the origins of therapy as we know it. Right. Um, psychodynamic psychotherapy, um, even CBT, um, any really kind of like quote unquote therapy yeah. um, that's regulated by the BBS, right, is kind of began with psychoanalysis. Um, which began with hypnosis. Um, That's right. I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Freud was a, a neurologist and he was an MD and uh, he was uh, finding out that hypnosis was like working for people and helping people. And so he started practicing that and then realized hypnosis was really leading mm-hmm. and wasn't actually helping people get in contact with themselves, but more with what the practitioner wanted so he devised i mean he basically wrote like everything right um you know he was best friends with carl jung who jung was his protege and then jung and he sort of split around the libido yeah um jung said there's no libido sexual energy is more um you know relational and Freud was, you know, he's a Darwin Darwinian, so he's like, no, sex is important, and we can't forget about sex in the body. Mm. I mean, Freud said the ego is first and foremost a bodily ego. So interesting, yeah. There's like, see, I studied these things on such a surface level, sure. and you're studying it on such right. an in-depth level. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things about analytic training. It's really interesting because we are studying it in depth, but it is also it's like we're we're flying over the surface like a pelican flying over the surface of the ocean. Right. Mm. And we're picking up fish every now and again. And we're very close to the ocean, but there's an ocean and there's a lot of ground to cover. Um, So we can dive deep in some things, but not not always. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So in terms of what psychoanalysis is, is really just about getting in contact with the unconscious. And it's a technique. And uh, psychoanalysis itself comprises several different theories, a lot of which don't get along with each other. Right, right. um, You know, and a lot of which don't agree and prove each other wrong or whatever. Um, And... So, but but ultimately, the idea is we're getting in contact with the unconscious, and the unconscious uh, communicates with us in these various ways. Yeah. So we're trying to open up space for that to be a possibility to listen, um, to make meaning, and to understand uh, all of the depths and complexities of the person who is coming for the psychoanalysis. Like, 
not even so much that the practitioner understands, but that the patient makes something of it, makes makes themselves into somebody. Yeah. And so that process is very deep. It's very intensive. It's very complicated. It brings up all the things we don't want to feel, we don't want to think, we don't want to believe about ourselves. Um, and then it de-escalates the anxiety around that. Um, but it de-escalates the anxiety by being in contact with the anxiety. Right. At least that's what a Kleinian would say. <laughs> a relational might say something else. <laughs> so modern Freudians, I think, I don't know them that well. So my apologies if anybody gets offended, but I think uh, I don't think a lot they're... of modern Freudians <laughs> listen to the show. You might get one. Oh, we'll see. I don't know. Fingers I don't know where crossed. they are. Fingers crossed. If you are a modern Freudian, please alert Lily. Yeah, t- so that we tweet, can know more. Tweet at me <laughs> at Lily Rose Sloan or at Radical underscore Advice. If modern Freudians, that's what it is. Is it's just a Freudian who uses Twitter. <laughs> That's that's what modern Freudianism is. And then a postmodern Freudian would be using <laughs> Twitter to criticize Twitter. <laughs> um, yeah. As far as I know, there are some of the more conservative, very sort of like what we think about in terms of rigidity and all mm-hmm. of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's really psychoanalysis in my experience is like... Uh, it's very odd. It's very weird. I I hate it, and I can't live without it. And um, it, but it gives me a space to do all of that. Yeah, I've been so um, surprised and moved by how well my community, including everyone from my analysts to my supervisors to my instructors to the community at at Pink at Psychoanalytic Institute in Northern California, can hold my. Uh, how would I put it, mutually critical and interrogative practice around what I'm being taught and how it integrates with what I feel is necessary and important in Mm. our social milieu. Yeah. So people have been really, I think, receptive to using psychoanalytic theory as well as critical theory, social justice theory, queer theory, um, black and indigenous theory to interrogate psychoanalysis mm. and then make it richer, make yeah, it more right. like alive because any field can, and we, I think see this a lot in academia, any field can like be self-referential and look like it's growing because people are publishing papers, but there's nothing new in it. Yeah. And it right. just becomes more and more regressed. So like any field, psychoanalysis is alive and relevant and emergent and needs to continue to to do that. And so that's where myself and my fellow candidates, we all, you know, play a big role in making sure that psychoanalysis is not relegated to papers of 30 to 50 to 100 years ago. Yeah. That it's it's relevant with the people we work with and Mm -hmm. who we are. Mm And I mean, that's incredible. And I, I, I don't think my criticisms of psychoanalysis would be any good because I don't really understand enough of it to really have like, you know, really good, solid insider criticisms of it. And so I really appreciate you as like this bridge mm. for me. Mm-hmm. Like when we do talk about it, it's uh-huh. like, okay, um, I know you are an incredible therapist and that you are considering so much 
within that sphere and using psychoanalysis in a, in a way that's very um, adapted to these other ways of thinking, to social justice thinking, to, I mean, I guess I would say more modern ways of thinking right. and more progressive ways of thinking. Right. And I, but I still find myself having this fear that if I were to dip into that world, I would find that that's not the norm. Uh, right. I mean, like any group, you know, there are communities within community. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there, yeah, there are all kinds of people. I mean, but that's the thing is like we can say that about any therapist. There are all yeah, kinds totally. of therapists because there are all kinds of people who not only are therapist people, um, which, you know, is like <laughs> radical in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. But also like people are going to want different kinds of treatment depending on who they are or what they believe or what, you know, what's, you know, inside them. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think psychoanalysis can get really scary because we do on some level have to keep it private, very private. And a lot of the mm. clinical material that's out there, um, I'm skeptical about. I think I'm skeptical about it just because, I feel very uncomfortable with the idea of any clinical material being published, even though I know that there are APA ethical guidelines around like what's mm. allowed to be published oh, and, you mean and case, whatever, case but case studies. material. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, there's this criticism that Jonathan Shedler, t you know, is kind of uh, pushing to disrupt. Uh, but there's this criticism of it being non-scientific and mm -hmm. non-evidence-based oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. and blah, 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 which Jonathan Shedler is able to prove. Like, And I never followed – I didn't know who he was, but then oh, he yeah. his I saw some of his tweets recently about yeah. this, and they were incredible. Yeah, he yeah. wrote – I think he wrote a blog on Psychology Today, or I think he oh, writes right, yeah, there yeah. a lot. And he just moved to the Bay, actually, oh, San Francisco, cool. so you might run into him. Hmm. Um, but – you know, the, the whole idea about evidence-based is uh, all you have to do is make a study out of it. It doesn't right. have to prove anything. Right, right, right. You can just yeah. get an N of whatever, yeah. you know, and like you, yeah. uh, whatever. So and it's, and it's easier to make a study out of a treatment that is manualized where somebody is following a very strict protocol, which right. Like he tweeted, is not how therapy, actual therapy works. Right. I, I thought it was pretty interesting where he was talking about quote unquote real therapy, which yeah. I was like, hmm. yeah, I get your point, but I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, um, yeah, I mean, and so I think, I think there are a lot of ways that people can kind of disparage psychoanalysis. And I have to say, there are some good reasons to do so because psychoanalysis has been way behind the curve in terms of, I was going to say queer identity and queer life, mm. but it goes, you know, to, you know, it's been very heterosexist. Yeah. It's been very patriarchal. It's been very classist. Mm -hmm, um, it's mm -hmm. been extremely, you know, pathologizing, you know, just... I had to unlearn and then relearn the whole idea of perversion, oh, right? Because yeah. that's a psychoanalytic term. Right, right. Which is actually very useful in thinking about ways in which people have had to manipulate, let's say, reality or relationship in order to create like a cohesive enough self mm -hmm. uh, or at least part of a self that can function in the world. Yeah. But it's been applied to people who don't fit the norm. 
Right. That's not what it started off as being. Mm. And that's not what it can actually be taken to understand to mean. Yeah. But because of the way psychoanalysis has applied the term and used the term to severely harm and damage individuals and communities. Yeah. And I would say psychoanalysis itself has been harmed and damaged. Mm. Then it's it, we have to throw it out. We have to throw and and that's that's part of the difficulty. Yeah. And that's part of the grappling. It's like, okay, like there is or was something really important in that that I want to understand theoretically so that I can think about it with people, you know, that I'm working with when it applies. Yeah. But I can't use that word, mm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Because now the word means something very dangerous and damaging. Yeah. But it didn't. U- it didn't used to have a pathology attached to it. So that's an interesting phenomenon and that too. Any- anybody could have perversion. Yes. Yeah. Right. Just like anyone can and actually is narcissistic. Like right, we are right, all right. narcissistic, right? Yeah, yeah. But that word, like we have to be. Otherwise, we there's failure to thrive. Right. We die. Right. So, but that word now has been, you know, associated with something pathological. Yeah, which it can't, it can be, but it's a different narcissism or it's a different place on the spectrum of narcissism. Sure. And that's, that's what psychoanalysis in my mind actually invites us to do is Mm -hmm. placing not even on a spectrum, but in like a, in a big bowl together Mm -hmm. that like sometimes the same person can show up at different ends of something or with different, you know, sort of anxieties or, you know, um, uh, paranoias or pathologies or whatever, like whatever. I mean, we can all sort of show up in these different ways, depending on circumstances, depending on our environment, depending on hormones, depending Mm -hmm. on, you know, what we're faced with. Um, There's that whole idea of après coup, um, which is fascinating. I think Freud first came up with it when, and he called it Nachtralkeit. I'm not, my German's not very good, but <laughs> it's, it's this, uh, what is, I forget what it means exactly. Like there's an actual translation, but it's, it, it means you've had an experience, you know, you've had an experience as a kid, let's say, and then you're in your twenties and then you have, either that experience again or a memory of that experience, but from the mind of somebody in their 20s. And then you look back at that memory and you go, holy shit, that was a trauma. Mm -hmm. So you did not know that you had experienced a trauma until later. And so it's this like reflective back. Now there is a trauma, but it's from the past. Uh, uh But you're feeling it in the present. Right. Deferred action. Oh. I think is that what it is? Oh, here I found it. Mm. Afterwardsness. Afterwardsness. Yeah. That's poetic. I know. Okay, here's what Wikipedia <laughs> has to say. Afterwardsness. Okay, in the psychoanalysis of Sigmund Freud, afterwardsness is a mode of belated understanding or retroactive attribution of sexual or traumatic meaning to earlier events. Hmm. Um Translated as deferred action, retroaction, après coup, coup, <laughs> après coup, <laughs> and afterwardsness. Hmm. Yeah, I like afterwardsness. Yeah, me too. It's a good song title. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh-huh.
Afterwards, my mother's last days were the end of a winter that had become only rolling blackout into blackout, a time I had no hold on. All news held a kind of dread, but hours, when it came, felt like coming to. A dimness in an old room, a sense of certain things as absence. Two sisters agreeing under the apple tree that the gathering speed with which everything was being done was just plain wrong.
station engineer and you're listening to bff.fm oh the cable's fucked up you are listening to radical advice on bff.fm uh i'm lily sloan that was rogue dream by bells atlas and before that was afterwards by will burns and hannah peel uh, and we've been listening to my interview with Molly Merson, psychotherapist in uh, Berkeley. And she's been sharing a bit about her experience training as a psychoanalyst. So as the OG form of therapy, there's a lot to both appreciate and to criticize about psychoanalysis and its creators. So it's really interesting hearing how Molly navigates these tensions. So why don't we jump in to more? I feel like actually psychoanalysis is pretty rad and radical um, and it can certainly fall to, I mean, Freud had like lots of personal faults and there were a lot of mistakes that he made and a lot of people have made a lot of mistakes and I hear stories about people who, you know, like were in analysis with Winnicott and said he was terrible. Oh, and like, that makes me you know, sad. I know, course, I know. But like, okay, so the, here's one thing I've learned by being in psychoanalytic training. All of my idols have fallen. Yeah. And yeah. I've learned how to tolerate that. Interesting. That has been like the top five lessons that I have learned among them oh. has been like how to tolerate feeling excited and enthralled and like idolizing almost certainly idealizing of of people or theory or ideas yeah and recognize that we're all flawed we are all flawed i'm not comfortable with that (laughs) that's fair this is why you need to go four times a week (sighs) for years because now we're going to leave each other and you're going to be left with that feeling. Yeah. But if we were coming together tomorrow, right, we could we continue can... to hold it together. Uh-huh, uh-huh, right, yeah. It's such a big commitment. I mean, it's a lifestyle. It's a Yeah. It's a such a huge thing. It is. It's big. And what like what do you feel you get out of that that you wouldn't get out of weekly therapy? 
I mean, it's, wow, that's a really interesting question because sometimes I feel like even, so I go four times a week. Mm-hmm, and, so, and that's and, kind of a typical like suggested yeah, amount. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, that's like, uh, I would say three to five times okay. is sort of suggested. Um, although, you know, there are lots of different ways to do it. Yeah. Um, but my experience is that even going four times a week and having three days in between, because I go four days in a row. Uh-huh. Yeah. So having three days in between, sometimes I come back in like on day one, you know, after the three day break and I go, I can't, I mean, I've lived lifetimes Wow. in those three days. Yeah. And I don't even, I can't even get to like a tiny smidgen of the things that that I thought or dreamt mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. or that occurred to me or yeah. were alive in my life. So, I mean, it, it, to have, for me, and I think everybody goes at their own pace, right? But I think for me, the first few years of psychoanalysis, I, I wasn't that into going all the time. I was pretty resistant. Mm. I was aware of the money and the time. And I have this long commute to get to my analyst. And, mm. you know, I'm busy and all of these things. And just, you know, and I thought I thought my analyst was like too rigid and all of these things. Right. And mm-hmm. um, that's probably all still true. But I don't feel it that way at all anymore. Um, and it, it, I think really unlocked something for me in my own attachment style Oh, that, you know, I don't have a full complete thought about right now, so I can't really share more, but like my attachment style of like what it's like to get close to somebody, I, I'm like sort of maybe a little disorganized in that way. Mm -hmm. Like I, I have maybe a little push pull when it comes to that, you know, uh, but I, I think it really helped me with trust and consistency and uh, regularity yeah. and just really gives me a place to um, – I don't actually necessarily bring everything to my analyst. There's a lot of things I just don't have time to tell her. But there's also, you know, uh, stuff that I would rather not. Yeah, that's very interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. But that's why, like, I've been in – you know, this treatment for many years, and I have many more years ahead of me, I suspect. Yeah. And we'll see. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting you talk about, like, lifetimes going by in those three days in between, yeah. and that on those four days that there's things to talk about so every much. time. And oh, my gosh. I, I tend to always have things to talk about, but, you know, I'll have a handful of clients, you know, or people I know who will re- relay this to me in their experience, like, I don't know like nothing really happened this week I don't know and it kind of baffles me because I always can come up with something to talk about and yeah I wonder if some of it is a certain level of like who we are as people and that we are constantly like you know internally processing and thinking about things but also if there's mm-hmm. something about mm-hmm people just not being used to thinking about themselves Mm -hmm. in that way oh yeah I mean I think I think you know I I think it's perfectly fair to feel like you don't have anything to bring into your therapy I'd love I'd love to be in that place to not have any (laughs) well but I think you know I think then for me it becomes a question of well why are you there right and and because for all of us it is kind of an inconvenience 
Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like you have to get there. You have to probably take time off work. Yeah, you got to pay. You have to pay. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I have a particular cancellation policy, right? And so yep, people yep. have to pay even if they don't come and, you know, yep. except for extenuating circumstances. So it's like, you know, um, it's a commitment. Yeah. So what would it be that a person is committing to something that's an inconvenience and has nothing to bring and mm. has no nothing to say? Yeah. No way to make use of it. First of all, are they making use of it in some other way? Yep. Right? Yep. Is there something else that's happening that isn't about words and speaking? Right? And then also like what is being communicated? What is there actually to think about together? What does the therapist need to be metabolizing on their end? What feelings does it bring up in the therapist or the analyst, right? Like, yeah. what does it feel like to be with some sitting with somebody who's like, I don't know, nothing? Yeah. yeah. Like, there, there's so much information. There's so much even in that. You know, does it make you frustrated as a therapist? Does it make you fall asleep? Does it make you ask the questions that I'm asking? You know, like, yeah. You know, I think let's say if it was a manualized treatment, somebody might say like, well, you're not doing your homework, uh -huh. right? right? Right. And, you know, want to maybe actually be very curious about why you're not doing your homework. But psychoanalytically, I would not approach it that way. Although I might, you know, want to know like, depending on what I'm getting from the person, right? Because that's a whole relational piece. Yeah. If I'm getting from the person that like they want to speak but don't know how or they're maybe angry with me for something that happened the week before or the session before yeah, or they just want to like our lives are so fucking busy even if we do nothing there's shit happening all the time. Yeah. Maybe people just want some peace and quiet. Right. I right. mean like fine. That's great. Uh, and to share space with somebody to not have to do it by themselves. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Maybe yeah. instead of, you know, checking out, you know, uh, with drugs or alcohol or Netflix or food or whatever, you want to come check out with another human being. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what's that?
You are listening to Radical Advice on BFF.FM, Best Frequencies Forever. I gotta get, I gotta get smoother with that. Man, so abrupt. I'm so abrupt. Anyway, uh, that was Segment and the Line by Karen. And we've been listening to my interview with Molly Merson about psychoanalysis. And this really intersects with social activism for Molly. And we didn't plan it, but the recent fires in California took us down a path about climate change. So here's a nice long segment for you. Uh, That naturally starts with a dead rat. Community Radio. All your friends are doing it. 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 Best frequencies forever. Are you sure the ghost of uh, Nightmare Before Christmas is in here? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what's a bridge between Halloween? I feel like there could definitely be ghosts here at any time. Anyway. Oh, yeah. I hope so. Yeah. Hey, ghosties. <laughs> Our dead objects are everywhere. I know. I mean, there's a dead rat right there. Oh, so. yeah. yeah. What does that represent inside? A dead rat. Yeah, it represents a dead rat. I mean, it might represent like the the posture that. So there's a taxidermy rat in it's white the and it's yeah. it's looking up at the sky. Yeah, and its tail is sort of like in a weird position. It's very erect. I yeah, I the, don't know. The tail is erect. Oh, what does that mean? <laughs> what would Freud say about that? He'd probably light a cigar. He probably would. <laughs> he probably would. I mean, I think that rat is definitely representing. A kind of dignity like yeah yes i'm dead yes i'm a rat yeah i'm stuffed i'm stuffed but also i still have my dignity yeah. i still have my power yeah and you're still kind of freaked out to touch me even though right. i can't do anything to hurt you and right. that is power right he does have and it's almost like a smugness on his facial yeah. expression yeah yeah i see that mm. yeah it's like i will continue to freak you out even in my death and he kind of, he's also kind of postured like a T-Rex, right? Oh, yeah, the little arms. Right, but yeah. he's not a, hes not afraid of having his chest exposed, you know? Right. He's like, I i know my power. Yeah. That's really. That is a, yeah. I feel really differently about this rat now. It's kind of powerful. Yeah. I, I, had, a, I had an association that maybe he was getting called up by the alien uh, spaceship. Oh, you know, getting like caught up in the tractor beam and, yeah, you know, maybe going to a new world. What does that represent for you, that fantasy? Um, cold, dark space, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. new possibilities, mm-hmm. transporting. We all think we want to change. Yeah. We all think we want to not do the things that we don't like about ourselves or whatever. But I'm going to say transformation is fucking hard. Like it yes. is the worst. It's like, all right, you want to change? Let's go. Why don't you go sit in a sewer for a while <laughs> with no a- entrance or exit <laughs> in yes. the dark? Yes. That's why you need psychoanalysis. Oh, my God. I mean, and psychoanalysis, I imagine, feels like that sometimes. I mean, I, I think psychoanalysis actually can provide a really good container for that feeling that's already there. 
You know right, what I mean? Like, right. I think I think that feeling is already or can be already there. I mean, I think real transformation is just so excruciating in a lot of ways because we're having to both unlearn and learn at the same time. Yeah. Which means that we have to all the things we think we know, we have to um, maybe pick apart. Yep. And and separate, yeah, we're not learning you know? from scratch. It's, right. It's. I mean, not to say babies just have it easy, but they kind of have it easy, you know? <laughs> Let's hope. I hope babies have it easy. Yeah. That's my I know wish. there are some babies who don't, and yeah. I feel very sad for them. Yeah. 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 I, 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 It's hard to be a baby sometimes, too, because you have yeah. no way to process all the sensations. I mean, as a baby, aren't you just all sensation and no yeah. mind? Yeah. I mean, it's all very overwhelming, and mm. and then it's especially traumatizing if your caregiver doesn't get you at all Ugh, yeah or doesn't or is you know in their own trauma yeah. or whatever and just totally. can't and I think that's mm-hmm. that again it's like therapy therapy makes being a baby tolerable mm-hmm. and livable yeah. and like a natural process that needs to happen yeah that we're all going to get through and you're not going to be alone yeah but if you don't have caregivers or a caregiver to be there with you mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. or you don't have a trustworthy caregiver yeah a consistent caregiver yeah how yeah. do you then then it's traumatizing yeah then change is traumatizing yes yes let's say you have all of those good things mm-hmm. you know um in your therapist slash caregiver yeah person but you're used to not. Yep, yep. Right? Mm-hmm. So standing at that threshold and trying to enter that door into transformation and change can be filled with all of the past sort of après coup mm-hmm. stuff, all the afterwardsness, yes. right? And you could be worried or like Winnicott would say, fear of a breakdown that's already happened. Mm. And then yeah. that would make it feel as though it could be traumatizing. Yeah. And that makes it scary. Yeah. But the work, I mean, that's what psychoanalysis is. It's a process. It's not an outcome. Right. Right. We're not trying to change people. We're wanting people to know themselves. Yeah. From then they can decide, do you want to or not? You can try to start to change. And if you don't like it, fine. That's not, we have no stake in the game. Mm. When it comes to that, that's sort of the ideal. As human beings, of course, I have a stake in in what my people are bringing in, my people, (laughs) my patients. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I like the word people better than patients or clients. I know. It just bothers me, both of those. But yeah, yep, I'm with you. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I I think that it's it's like I I can easily get caught up in having an agenda or having a – because you care. Because I care, Yeah. 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 Because I care and because I have my own shit where I get triggered or rigid or whatever. Sure. And right. that can come up. And it's been cool to see occasionally certain um, of my people will <laughs> will um, that in and of itself, if it, if it ends up being a big enough thing that it's noticeable, mm-hmm. then it's something we talk about and uh-huh. has has actually deepened. stuff considerably like oh wow we just went through that together I got triggered you got triggered oh yeah yeah and like I'm enough of a professional that I could work with that absolutely you know I might not be great at it with like other people in my life sometimes (laughs) but it's like I mean I'm okay at it but but you know 
in in your life you yeah. can be like ah oh, whatever i'm just not going to hang out with that person sure sure but as a therapist it's like oh okay i'm here to look at yeah. what is happening yes. inside of myself too right and use that because this might indicate a problem this person keeps running into with people in their lives exactly and it's not just because it's all their fault it's mm-hmm. like that was some of my stuff too mm-hmm. but yeah and that's that's where again you know the the beautiful sort of experience of the unconscious is that it's not just the patient who has the unconscious. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's also not just the two of you in the room who both have an unconscious. Yeah. You're creating another one mm. and you're in a social milieu unconscious. We're just spawning unconscious. They're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, you know, that's why I sort of liken it all. And I think, you, you know, uh, I might have said this the, the last time that I was here, but to mycelium. Mm. I don't know if I was on my mycelium kick at that point. Or no. Not, yeah, I uh, <laughs> have to say, I watched um, Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. Is, I know it's highly contended among uh, Star Trek fans. Yeah, I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> I'm sure you a do. A lot of opinions, but there are some things about it that were <laughs> Not bad. So I, I thank you for sharing your opinions with me. Now I know which side of the camp you're on. Um, <laughs> Still watched it all. <laughs> the second season was different from the first season. The second season was better, and then it's it got canon. and then it got worse. <laughs> it, it it actually it got oh, better, yeah, uh-huh. and then it just totally fucked itself at the end. But whatever. Wow, that's how I feel. I I hear that, but I but I think. <laughs> I'll understand the reference you're making about mycelium. So my yeah, so so you have some, so you can kind of understand the mycelium, you know, in, in the uh, series. And I'm not giving anything away. Yeah. I don't think. If no, it really happens very say, early on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll just say there is a character in the uh, at least in the first uh, season um, where uh, there is a space creature who can ride the space mycelium. Yeah. And, and that's mycelium is like a, a fungal network. It's like it's yeah. mushrooms, basically. It's mushrooms. So that's a real thing. Paul Stamets is a real guy. Oh, really? Yes, he's a mycologist. Oh. And he is super into all of this stuff, right? So Yeah, so the there's a character, Paul Stamets, who's like a real – he actually came to speak here, like Herbster City Arts and Lectures or something oh, like that, wow. like maybe a year or so ago. I wanted to go, but um, yeah, so mycelium is like, you know, what they're talking about sort of in space is actually really, that's, it is the largest animal on the planet and it connects continents, mycelium. And there, it's considered an animal. It's a fungus. It's fungus, yeah. But it's a living, it's, it's an alive thing that has a communication network. It has language. It communicates with other beings. So redwood trees rely yeah. on mycelium to know when there's a fire coming or when there's cold coming or whatever. So they can evacuate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. And then it broke my fucking heart. I know. I know. Right? Oh, my God. We went. I went from like thinking about trees running and then just like, fuck, we are going through some really terrible terrible stuff right now 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really bad. Yeah. It's and it's just like chronic and constant and um, terrifying. And people, I just, um, it impacts all of us. Yeah. When the fires first happened a couple of years ago, I wrote something on Medium, um, how to be I, a therapist when the world is on fire. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. That was I, really wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. I just had to get it out. And of course, now, a few years later, I've learned so much more about, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I was sort of equating my position as a therapist in Berkeley to a kind of privilege, right, of like, uh, I can sit here in my room and not know what's going on around me. But when the smoke happens, it's in my lungs, too. Yes. And that's a problem. Yeah. It's a problem when we think about the wars that are happening on the street. White supremacy has, like, infiltrated every neighborhood and community. And, you know, there are people dying and there are cops killing people. And, you know, I can go on and on. But yeah. that is also happening. And you know my privilege is that you know i i can be separate from it at least bodily yeah if not psychically right and that is something i'm trying to tear down yeah. those walls right mm -hmm. um because when people are evacuating up north they're evacuating here um they are our friends and family members i know lots of people whose family who actually two people whose um, homes burned in paradise mm. you know so i hear people talk about like oh wow maybe we should move from the bay or maybe we should go somewhere else or you know and i have friends who have moved because of the violence because of the climate stuff because of the expense which is all about gentrification and pushing out folks of color and communities of color from oakland a black city yeah you know and just pushing them out and then jacking up the prices and that's why you know people are leaving yeah but i'm thinking you know where do we go when it's climate yeah when it's race yeah. and economic related where do we go yeah i mean i was my friend i was at my friends the other day and I, it was uh it was it was actually a day where we were not sure if the smoke was going to get bad here we've mm -hmm. been lucky so far but I was having a lot of anxiety and I went to her house and hung out and um was making banana bread with her and her uh and her two and a half year old and mm. like it was a really nice afternoon but we were yeah. also feeling the weight of of that anxiety and her husband right. they're both therapists her um she said to her husband she's like what are we what do we do do we move away from the bay area mm -hmm. and he's like I mean, we can run, but we can't hide. Yeah. And it's going to catch up. Yeah. I mean, not we can't hide from climate. No. And it's climate racism. Yeah. Yeah. And we can pretend that we're, you know, fine here, yeah. but yeah. we're not. So, you know, the question is, well, okay, now that we're here, what do we do? Yeah. And it's like, so we had all these power shutdowns, right? And it's like, okay, well, then um, if people need to come charge their phone at my house, that's what we do. Yeah. If people need to uh, get, you know, clean air from an air purifier, then that's what we have available. You know, it's complicated because for our houseless friends and, and community, it's like, what what happens then? Right. It, it brings me to this question of um, tapping in again to people who are already organizing around this and then really wanting to shake 
politics awake. Yeah. Because they keep, I think, talking about the same things over and over without actually, I think, knowing what they're saying to Mm. some degree Mm. or without really affecting change in meaningful ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, yeah, that's what Greta Thunberg was like, like trying to get at. Yeah. With her speech. It's just like you're not doing anything. Right. Well, and the indigenous folks, you know, there are still so many imprisoned from um, Standing Rock and that pipeline has already burst. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's all of the indigenous activism, climate activism that's been going on for a long time. Yeah. You know, uh, Mary Heglar you should follow her on Twitter if you don't. Yeah, you suggested that okay. and I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's she's great and she's writing about, you know, she's got this great article that's like, yeah, it's um you can shame yourself for not recycling all you want, but it's bigger than that. Yeah. Which I really appreciate. Cuz it's not like, okay, just say fuck it and be nihilistic. No. Right? Cuz that that's like an eco-fascist approach. That's right. you know what the fascists want, but it's also like, okay, we have to really be thinking a lot bigger here and make sure that our our day-to-day actions support a bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that's the the, the thing is we've been distracted by for so many years uh this individualistic approach to like yeah. oh individual consumers. And I've I've been frustrated for a long time because I have done those things and I see so many people not doing them and they don't seem that hard to me right right, (laughs) and I have my own like frustrations about it but where it started to shift for me is that I realized that it doesn't matter that much and that's not really the point right exactly and not that people were doing anything else either but like it well, and recycling is a huge issue, too, right. because like, where does it go? It goes to China. That costs a lot of gas. I mean, it's very toxic to be shipping things across the ocean. Yeah. I mean, our consumption is really like a huge problem. Absolutely. But yeah, the the much bigger systems yeah. that like that's what needs to be held accountable and yeah. needs to change because right. because we're living in a society that's saying you need these consumer goods, you need this level of convenience in your life. Right. And and to a certain degree, I actually have a lot of uh, compassion for that because yeah. it's true. And because yeah. I stress myself the fuck out by doing some of the things I try to do to right. reduce that. Well, right. And if you think about somebody who's disabled or um, poor and, you know, has, uh, you know, different uh, sort of impingements on access. Yeah. It's like, you know, and the whole straw ban in San Francisco drove me fucking bananas. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just like, OK, really? Like, ugh. It's it's a very it's it's like okay well I already kind of don't usually grab a straw if I don't need it right because that's that works for me but right. it, it it was such a bullshit like doesn't even begin to touch the real right. problem right and yet everyone can catalyze around it yeah. so I think actually there's something to be learned from that right strategically it's like okay we can pick something that's small enough that people can catalyze around it that change can be made that pressure can be applied and that you know things will will happen yeah we gotta think bigger than straws <laughs> yeah right but what is that thing and that's not a straw, but that's about something else. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know, you know, what that is. We're grasping but- at straws, Molly. <laughs> we are. <laughs> and there aren't any yeah. anymore. Yeah. 
I have a metal straw, though. Oh, Somebody yeah, yeah. gave I me have one. A gl- I have a glass one. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. It seems very chemistry to me. I know, right? It kind of <laughs> looks like a part of a bong. <laughs> it's like blown glass. Like. <laughs> Do you have a little hole in it? Like, <laughs> I should. A little car- carburetor, is that what it's called? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know my, my bong you terminology. You don't know your apparatus. No. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's like, it's the problem is, is that there isn't even a clear, like, this is a thing to do. I mean, I could suggest something, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, there, and, and it's yeah. the whole PG&E thing we could think about, right? It's, it's PG&E is extremely responsible for these problems. And so is the Public Utilities Commission. Yeah. And so is everyone who sort of is supposed to, like, be upholding the legitimacy of their, you know, uh, power lines and all this stuff. Um, so is, you know, all of the stuff in the, in the sort of higher echelons of government around like corporations are people too kind of thing and like yeah. you know all of that kind of relates but like being able to really be clear about accountability and hold those accountable who need to be accountable I think that's a that's a great move to take yeah you yeah. know the the PUC and PG&E can be held collectively accountable for something and then we can we can look into it and see you yeah. know and like kind of create better regulations and there's this these ideas of you know, p- actual public utilities. Right, and yeah. I don't know anything enough about that to really know what the right move is. But, you know, that w- seems like a place to start rallying. Yeah. It's, it's and, a little bigger than a straw, but right. it still is focused. And you're and you're right that pg is a good example, but and it's just one example. Right. Of, because so much... Um, so much environmental damage is is happening as a result of industry too right. and just so yeah. you know what are the monopolies out there that need yeah. to be better regulated or broken up sure. how do we how do we do that right. and i mean i'd love us to move away from being this such a car based society but also sure. like that's that's the reality a long for now way yeah. to go um right. i'm like luck- luckily in san francisco i don't need one but you know the yeah the automobile autom- manufacturers yeah. maybe went into certain EPA regulations kicking and screaming. Mm-hmm. But now when Trump wanted to take them away, they're like, wait, actually, no, we're like, mm-hmm. we're adjusted to this now. <laughs> Some of them. I Some mean, them. Toyota, yeah. General Motors. I mean, these people are all like, cool, we're on board. Yeah. For some of them, I think they're saying, actually, we would lose money yeah. if you roll these back. Oh, interesting. Um, because they've invested so much in the technology. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. But it, it's it's stuff like that where it's like, it's not killing those industries, those industry and some industries need to die, and that's sad, and that's changed. That's that really. They can turn into this rat over here, right? Okay, we're, we're gonna, aspirational, we're, powerful yeah. in death. Yeah, we're gonna taxidermy the coal industry. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Just like, but big like taxidermied hunks of ore right. on the side of the road when you're like road tripping. Uh, in your car, <laughs> I'm like I'm seeing some discrepancies. I know maybe in this when you're on you're when you're on like high speed rail <laughs> there across the country, horseback. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I mean, what would you say um, from a psychoanalytic perspective? How mm-hmm. would how would you frame so, if you have any thoughts around like yeah. our relationship to these things, sure, both yeah. personally and collectively? 
Right. I mean, I think it's really about anxiety and annihilation anxiety um, and how and also how uh, we all have the capacity to get stuck in things that are toxic for us. Mm. And, um, you know, when you mentioned coal uh, taxidermy, the coal industry. Yeah. um, I'm you know, my first thought was, well, my second thought, because my first thought was that's funny. My second (laughs) thought was, um, well, you know, just like with our clinical work, um, we would have to offer something else. Yes. Because we can't we can't expect somebody to give something up without there being a viable alternative. Yeah. And um, what viable alternative I'm using air quotes is, you know, uh, is relational. It's community based. It's, you know, maybe different for everybody, you know, so one person might ride their bike. One person might drive a hybrid. One person might take high speed rail. One person might ride a horse. Yeah. So, you know, it's like there has to be something else that we are doing and looking for and having hope in. And so in terms of psychoanalysis and and how I would frame this psychoanalytically is like what I listen for is the way people talk about it. Because you and I are talking like we're friends. We're talking as friends and we're talking like about really major issues but from a for a particular reason. Yeah. We're not talking because I'm we're trying to understand how you or how your whole self has been constructed around this anxiety. Yeah. Right? Right. That would require a lot more consistency and, and association and space and time and all these things, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of how I – and I look at when do people bring it in, you know, and what's the context. And I think collectively then, you know, to look at sort of what we're doing, I think that our country – and I'm just sort of – thinking as I speak right now. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, set in stone. (laughs) It's it's set on the air. Yeah, we will hold this. We will hold you uh, accountable when you run for office. Fine. Oh, boy. (laughs) There's going to be more than this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Our country, I would say, has actually sort of remember how I described uh, some psychoanalytic theory or any theory really that can get sort of self-referential? Our country has done that and we've become very insular and self-referential. Mm. So much so that we, and I'm not speaking to individuals or even communities because there are a lot of liberatory communities and people who are just really fucking fabulous at coming up with brilliant ideas. They're usually women of color, I'll just say. Yeah. But this can happen. But as a country as a whole, we have just gotten so self-referential that we we can't even um, imagine a new world. Yeah. All we can imagine is changing the rules of our current world. Right, right, right. So that is a problem. And what's a bigger problem i think is that we're we're not willing to as a country get vulnerable enough with the the traumas that this country has inflicted in order to be conceived yeah there is some major birth trauma in this country mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. has to do with the indigenous inhabitants here and the enslaved stolen people that were forced to labor and create wealth for white people here. And that has not been reckoned with. Yeah, not even close. Right. Well, yeah. we're starting to talk about it. 
And there are tons of books. There are tons of articles. Thank you, Nicole Hannah-Jones, for 1619 Project. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of work out there. You know, Winona LaDuke has written an amazing book that I highly recommend, Recovering the Sacred. Mm -hmm. So there are people who are talking about this, but it has not been taken up as a country. And so for me, it's like, well, it's like any kind of idea, which this country is an idea, that just sort of doesn't bring in any new thinking or any new imagination or any new possibility. Yeah. And from my mind, until we reckon with that, I don't, I don't really have hope. I have hope that we can. Yeah. And so when I'm, you know, sitting in my clinical office, you know, working with an individual, I have all of this in mind that everything that this person and I are talking about is in this context uh, because I'm in this context. Yeah. And so and because when they walk outside the door, when I walk outside the door, we're in this context because they have to pay me because we're in this context. You know, all these things, how they got to my office is part of this context. But, you know, it may not be the exact thing that we're talking about content wise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that people can transform and become more fully themselves, even in this context, gives me hope that the context itself can shift too. Yeah. But it's going to require a lot. It feels so urgent and like nothing is happening quickly enough and... Exactly. I, I struggle with that so much. I was, um, do you know Kimberlyn Leary? Mm-mm. She's a, a black psychoanalyst um, and uh, she is a professor at Harvard and um, really amazing mm-hmm. uh, human. And she came, uh, Pink does these, uh, there's actually one today, like a weekend uh, visiting scholar. Oh, cool. So she came to talk about like how change happens in organizations and I got to spend uh, the rest of the day with her in a small small group um, learning about that. And one of the things I, I, you know, she's very diplomatic. She worked in the Obama administration. So oh, she's wow. really got like, yeah, there's a psychoanalyst in the Obama administration. So like cool. real, So awesome. Yeah. Um, really opens up my mind to like what psychoanalysis can do and where right. and what context. Right. But I, you know, she's saying all these really wonderful things. And I'm sitting here and I, I told her, I'm like, what about the urgency? I'm like, mm-hmm. people are dying. She's like, yeah, well, you have to keep that urgency. And I'm, you know, she didn't say these words that I'm about to say next, but I took it as I'm teaching you how to speak to that urgency in words that people can hear. Mm. So I still have to learn that. Me too. <laughs> You're listening to BFF.M. I can't say that.
Listening to Radical Advice on BFF.FM. 
that was Mercy by Lucky Dragons. Um, it's a really fun and bonkers tune. No, no, the stream was not broken. That's what that song sounds like. And before that was I Am the Changer by Cotton Jones. And in the last segment, Molly Merson and I were talking about change, uh, you know, climate change, changing ourselves, changing systems of oppression, and how hard it change is, and how well the taxidermied rat in the room with us seemed to be handling it all. So next up, Molly and I answer a listener question. So remember, if you want your life question answered before Radical Advice ends in December, um, please go to RadicalAdviceShow.com and click Submit. I would love to hear from you. But back to Molly. So we have a listener question. Do you want to read it for us, Molly? I would love to. Okay. Okay. I guess the thing that amazes me about people who are therapists is how they are able to compartmentalize the trauma that they hold. I imagine it's a very personal skill to develop, but how do professionals cope with handling their patient's trauma? And then there's a second question. All right. What's your beverage of choice during session? Oh, for some reason, I don't know why my mind went. I thought was going to end with sex. What's your beverage of choice during sex? And I'm like, we can go with that. I usually drink you. beverages before or after, not during. So. You don't take drink breaks. <laughs> uh, those are both great questions. Um, yeah. Yeah. The Well, maybe we should start with beverages since that's a little more straightforward. <laughs> I almost exclusively drink water, though occasionally if it's after, if I've gotten like a sandwich at the market nearby for lunch, sometimes I want like something sweet to balance it. So I'll have apple juice mm. and I might be still drinking my apple juice during mm -hmm. my next session. If it's really cold, I might be making peppermint tea. Ooh. Do you have a tea kettle like in your office or? You know, one of my sub letters does because I share my office with other people, um, mm -hmm. but I haven't actually used it. I So I just microwave the water. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah sure. I have a microwave in there. Yeah. It's funny. I was going to say that's old fashioned. I know. To microwave your water <laughs> instead of these newfangled electric kettles. I know. <laughs> I probably should just ask if I can use it. I just didn't want to. I don't know. Anyway, how about you? What are your, what are your <laughs> this session This is interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> You're like, tell me more about what's behind that. No, I'm like, who no, is I'm okay. your subletter? Yeah. Are you afraid of them? I, I don't. Um, <laughs> let's see. Oh, for me, my I drink water. Yeah. Um, yeah. During session, definitely. I, I sometimes will drink like kombucha or sparkling water throughout the day. Yeah. But I don't like to drink that during session uh, because... It, it makes me burp. But honestly, I, water's fine. Yeah. I anyway, prefer yeah. it in session because I don't like being distracted. Yeah. Um, and if I'm distracted by my body for a reason that doesn't have something to do with the content of the session yeah. or my countertransference, then I I, prefer, I I just don't like it. I yeah. like to eliminate as many factors as I can, really. You're like, wow, this content that you're bringing in here is really making me burp, burp a lot. <laughs> 
I it's funny. I actually did burp in session one time because oh, yeah. of what somebody was saying. And what? I I interpret it and it's funny. I was like, I don't I'm like, I'm not sure if you heard me burp, but I think it means da 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 or something like that. <laughs> and the person was like, I didn't hear you. So I could have totally gotten away oh, with not man. but I thought it was so loud. I was like, wow. how could the person not hear me? Yeah, once in a while there's that like trying to not have like look like I burped, but feel it happen just in my chest. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> uh, I I do I only see clients one day a week and oh, okay, yeah. that's the day I'm the most hydrated because uh, it's su- such a ritual for me yeah. to be always working on a glass of water. So I'm drinking like a 12 ounce thing of water during each session. Right. And it's I think it's a thing to do with my hands, with whatever. Yeah. And like I it's end so up hydrating. drinking like six or seven of those in a day. Wow. You're right on track. Yeah. Isn't it funny that we're talking so much about this question and not about the other question that has to do with trauma? (laughs) Molly, you're right. We don't have to talk about the other question. I just find it interesting. (laughs) (laughs) People are getting a good demo right now. Uh, Yeah. Um, (laughs) Do you have a sense of why we're not talking? about the other one it's hard in fact i would venture to say we are talking about the other one Mm. we're talking about how we manage our bodies bodies being quite a location of trauma right um for you it's to stay hydrated and to have something to do with your hands perhaps yeah for me it's about uh maybe putting some things to the side Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. that i can fully show up yeah um and I think that is maybe how we might, in our own ways, approach how much we are holding, you know, yeah. from session to session on a daily basis. Yeah, and I, I don't, I don't know. It's interesting because the question has the word compartmentalizing in it, and I'm, I'm sure I'm uh-huh. doing some compartmentalizing, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think that the other thing is that I, I find. That the trauma that is the easiest for me to handle as a therapist is very explicit Mm. where I see my person (laughs) very explicitly being with their trauma and facing it and Mm -hmm. feeling it. Mm -hmm. Then I might Mm -hmm. feel a lot, Mm -hmm. especially during this. I have cried. I mean, I have I have been moved to tears many times as a therapist. Mm -hmm. Um. Um, I think for me, being able to really go through the feelings with somebody mm-hmm. um, is so easy for me to let go and, and keep going on about my day or my week than mm-hmm. when there's mm-hmm. a locked up mm-hmm. feeling mm-hmm. where I can't quite access it with them or where they, they're really disconnected from it or mm-hmm. um, it f- just something feels incongruous mm-hmm. with like the level of the trauma of the story and the emotional processing that's going on. Yeah. That's where I feel the most um, like I carry it with me and I feel a bit, I feel strained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 
that yeah. I mean, and and it's nobody's fault. I'm not saying so. Don't do that because that's where people are. Yeah. Wait. What would be don't do what? Oh, like so. So don't be. You know. So go into therapy and be open about your. Tra- oh, you know. I don't. Yeah. yeah. No. No. You're. I. I didn't take that, and I hope our listeners aren't taking it as yeah. an instruction manual. Yeah. Yeah. No. But more of just sort of like some of the different ways that we as humans are with our our trauma or what yeah. our patients bring in and that there are different kinds of trauma. Yeah. There are different textures to trauma. There are different ways it sits in our psyches and in our bodies. I mean, even as you were speaking, I could feel my mind wanting to dissociate. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we are trained professionals, so we know how to notice that and bring it back and we're you know, right. still here and everything. But that when you started to talk about the type of trauma that's locked up, yeah, then I could feel my mind going somewhere. Uh, and so kind of back to the psychosomatic thing we talked about in the beginning, right? Yeah. It's like we can't really separate, like my mind did the thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yet it, that's also attached to my body and the yeah. way in which I think it's about physical process. trauma. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. And, and it's good, I think, to know, you know, as a clinician, what, what, trauma feels like and which kinds of trauma like part of the work I think is to make trauma more like a thing between us or Mm. or a thing in the space yeah so that it can be looked at I mean I think that's really in a lot of ways what psychoanalysis aims to do right and it is interesting the the part of the question that talks about compartmentalizing like that's maybe not what we do with it. Yeah. Maybe we don't compartmentalize it, actually. I mean, I think for myself, the word I might choose is metabolize. Yeah, yeah. You know, how do I take it in and sit with it? And how do I, you know, show up with it? And, you know, for me, it doesn't stop when the session stops. The acuteness of it may, but I dream about, scenarios I yeah uh, that's part of my because that's my personal process yeah I have reverie all the time asleep and awake yeah and so for me I will be in different contexts and then I will remember a thing that happened in a session and sometimes I even apply it to the context that I'm in now which is so would be so different from the session right totally and I will learn something about and I will think something about oh you know, this is this trauma is about containment. Mm. This trauma is about, um, you know, uh, exposure. Mm-hmm. This trauma is about confusion and somebody not being who they say they are, mm-hmm. whatever. Right. Yeah, and so yeah. I will think all that and then I will track it and bring it at least to my thinking the next time I see the person, whether I say something about it or not. But that's, for me, that's how, like you were saying before, it's both of us in the room. Yeah. yeah. And we're both being affected. Yep. And so I have to bring myself, you know, in that way. Yeah, yeah. There is a term, uh, I actually said it on the show last week too, but that, uh, and there's research around it and talk about it, but vicarious trauma, which is that right. when you are in a role where you're helping people work through their trauma yeah. or you're hearing or, or witnessing people go through very traumatic things, it, it can be traumatizing. Absolutely. And I think that our our training ha- does a lot to, to support us in, in not becoming 
traumatized, but it depends on who you're working with and what kind of strain you're in in your life and what things it triggers in you. And I just want to add a note to any emerging therapists uh, that or people who are faced with trauma that feels too overwhelming in their clinical work. Yep. Um, Supervision is so important. Yep. You can have a consultant, you can have a supervisor, make sure they are supporting you, not just in the clinical material, but in your own countertransference yep. and get into your own therapy or whatever it is that feels right for you. Big push for community, big push for your own therapy, your own psychoanalysis, whatever it is. Yep. I mean, My consultation group that I was going to for mm-hmm. a while, which I actually really like group, though sometimes it's, you don't get enough time if you need to, to spend a lot of time on right. something, but for me, the, the group was perfect, and it, it was maybe like 70% focused on cases and 30% we were all like crying together because the world is so fucked up right now. Yeah. And like yeah. that that was that was a very important support. Yes, it's it, so necessary. It helped me in my work, yeah. Good. Yeah.
song from their album Bones. I think that one's from 2015. Yes, 2015. I guess that's the album I saw them perform. Um, But that song didn't, re- I don't remember that song for some reason. Anyway, love it. Um, And we are coming to the end and, and just about done talking to Molly Merson about psychoanalysis, social and climate justice, dead stuff and much much more um yeah let's let's say goodbye to molly (laughs) so grateful to have gotten you one more time before the show ends i'm so sad that it's ending and happy for you for your next it's okay you can just be sad if that's i feel both yeah yeah but i will be sad yeah me too and both yeah. Mm-hmm. So where do you uh, want people to find you online? Because you will continue to exist as I will continue <laughs> to exist. Uh, we will. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this recording will continue to exist. It's true. Yeah. Um, well, folks can go to my website, mollymerson.com. I used to write quite a lot. I haven't been writing as much because I've been working on academic papers and that sort of thing. If somebody wants to reach out to me, the best way to do would be through my website. Yeah, and um, these academic papers you're going to uh-huh. be presenting. Yeah, I've been uh, writing about interrogating whiteness in psychoanalysis, yes. um, and it's been a very necessary interrogation, both personally, professionally, and in the psychoanalytic community. So I'm going to be speaking. I spoke this year in uh, at Division Thirty Nine of the APA's spring meeting. Cool. Um, on whiteness and psychoanalysis. And then I'll be speaking uh, in New York in 2020 at the same meeting about sort of handling whiteness in, when it comes to reparations ah. and uh, also sort of to speak to human diversity in uh, psychoanalytic training programs. I'm excited. I'm so excited yeah. for you. And I'm Thank so you. glad to see how you've really like dove into this thing that's really important to you and done it in a very Molly way and a very <laughs> necessary way. So thank, thank you, you, Lily. It's been yeah. such a pleasure. Yeah. Really enjoyed chatting with you. You too. Always okay. do. Me too. <laughs> Let's get some pupusas now. Yeah, I'm okay. good. That's All good. Right. Awesome. All right. <laughs> oh, that was so, so fun for me. Um, I, I think Molly was listening for part of the show, but had to go to go into her see her analyst. I hope they're having a really good session. Um, 
And thank you so much for listening today. As always, you can find Radical Advice on Twitter and Facebook, and you can send me your life questions by clicking submit at radicaladviceshow.com. And since there are only six more broadcasts left of this show, I would also love to hear anything from you about your thoughts and feelings about the ending of the show, um, any reflections on particular uh, broadcast that you listened to that was meaningful to you or, um, you know, just anything that's coming up for you around the ending. Um, I, it, it would mean a lot to me to hear from you. So you can do this, do the same at radicaladviceshow.com by going to submit. Um, yeah, the, the last broadcast is December 17th. And I'm, yeah, I'm really feeling the finiteness of of this thing and noticing a, usually in the past when I've tried to book guests and I've I've I'll book maybe three months out and I will run out of slots because I'll ask more people than there are slots as, as you have to do to organize and um for the people who are like shoot I was too late I'll be like no problem I'll just add some more dates get get you in in four months and now that it's ending, the people who who missed the boat on getting to come on the show, who I, I missed the opportunity to have on the show, um, that's just it. That's it. They just won't be on the show. And um, I guess that there's some sadness about that. There's a little bit of an urge to just be like, well, well, maybe it doesn't have to end so soon. Maybe I can just, you know, do it in January. But I made this decision and I, I know it's the right decision. So it's going to end. Um, so like I said, thank you so much for listening. And I would love to close out the show with a bit of energy. Um, so here's a song with a title that I will pronounce horribly. Um, Dardit Vindenkomer. It looks German. Um, by Lorenz featuring Jackie, Duvchi, JJ, and Joy. Uh, I hope you have fun with it, and I hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of Radical Advice. Stop!
Francisco music scene. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever. 